Uh, Ecclesiastes uh, is a big fancy word that simply means preacher. And so that's, that's what it means. So uh, it's probably one of the more challenging books in the Bible because uh, you can quote anything out of that book <laughs> uh, because it's a wild ride. It should always be read as a whole because it's a whole sermon. And uh, if you pluck and pick, you want that one? If you pluck and pick, uh, it can be um, a little difficult. But we're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and uh, a well-read verse but in actual fact, is a pair and should always be read as a pair. And I, I want to read both pairs today. So Ecclesiastes 10, 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. And then the pair says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charm. Okay, so uh, with a reading like that, we better pray. And then I want to uh, share where we're going. Because we're starting a new series today, uh, both uh, here in Byron, and then we begin in Billy next week, next uh, Sunday night, uh, a new series that we've called Close to the Edge. And... Uh, I want to get a lot of us a lot closer than the edge uh, than where we are at the moment. So, uh, and I felt this is what God was speaking to me. So, uh, this is, uh, let me just get this happening. Uh, so, Byron uh, will be actually uh, looking at the cutting edge. And in Billy, in the afternoons, we're going to be looking at the bold as a line. And so, I want to move us all close to the edge as, as I can, and so that's what we're going to do. So I want to pray, and then we're going to launch in. Father, we thank you. We just pray for your blessing on your word. I pray it would live. I pray for us as a church. Father, we'd hear your voice. We'd hear your mind. Lord God, that you would breathe over our lives and that your blessing would be over and upon us. I pray your word would live today. Lord, I pray it would come together. I pray, Lord Jesus, it would speak deep into our beings. And Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of us, Lord, that you would move us to a sharpened edge. And Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, as I was leading up to this, I was reflecting how I first came to Jesus. I didn't grow up in the church per se. Uh, I actually came to Christ reading a Bible in the desert of Western Australia is how I came to faith. And... Uh, I was uh, pretty well totally secular uh, in my younger years. I uh, just embraced the theory of evolution. I didn't pray my father up a tree or in heaven. My father was up a tree, so uh, that's where my worldview was at. And, uh, and I remember that first time I ever read the Bible, and I was in Western Australia. I was all on my own. In fact, I spent about a two-month period where I, I barely, uh, once a week, I met a person. I went to town and bought some groceries. I lived in a forest, and all I did was go surfing. Sounds good, doesn't it, Brenton? What a life. Young bloke. I was 17, and all I lived for was surfing. I was living at Margaret River in Western Australia. And, uh, and anyway, uh, sometimes it blows on shore there, doesn't it, Nick? And it gets big. And I remember there was this long spell of where it was just onshore, and if you're a surfer, you know what that means. It means those waves. And I was just in a tent, and 
down in my bottom of my rucksack, I had this Bible and I had nothing else, so I pulled it out and began to read. I'd criticised it before, but I began to read it and I began in the New Testament because that's the only thing someone told me where to begin. And as I began to read, uh, it, it captivated me. And it, was, it wasn't so much the story of Scripture, it was the person of Jesus that captivated me. And as I read about Jesus, I was so taken by him. Uh, and just being as honest as I can, how I first encountered that. And as I read about Jesus, you know, I, I actually read his life and I've never seen anyone more busy in my life. In fact, it was like, it was so busy, people were breaking through roofs to get an audience with him. Uh, and, and the schedule was unbelievable. But in that, at the same time, I've never seen anyone more at rest than he was. He was the busiest person, yet the most restful person that I ever encountered. You know, is uh, when it came to that, he was possibly the most structured person I'd ever read. Uh, in fact, uh, Scripture says that he set his face like flint. So he's absolutely structured and so goal-orientated. But as I read him, I just saw someone who was so spontaneous, even someone grabbing or touching the hem of his garment, he would change direction. So it was this incredible structure, incredible dynamic spontaneity came together in one. You know, I read of uh, someone who was so loyal and committed to Israel and their religion. Yet at the same time as that, someone who was so counter-revolutionary, he turned the whole thing on its head. And it was like he was totally loyal, but yet totally counter-revolutionary. Uh, as I read about Jesus, I never read a more gifted orator or, or putting together of a sermon in my life. Uh, it so challenged me, like when I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I was just challenged, how could you put things that way? And yet at the same time, I never found anyone that was more of a doer than he was. And so if you want to get at the ultimate ultimate philanthropist, it was he. Yet at the same time, he was the ultimate academic. I, I never have read anyone who could personally instill more fear into someone's life. So the disciples in a storm, and he gets up and goes, be still. <laughs> Man, it was scary up to that point in the storm, but when it all went still, it got scarier. And it said that, they go, who was in the boat? They got so scared, yet at the same time, I've never found anyone that could bring more comfort in a dark moment. So Peter, if you remember, got out and walked on the water. <laughs> Do you remember that? And, uh, and he went swimming and he went walking. So when you cross the two, you just got squawking. And that's what he was doing. He began to squawk. And, and you remember, Jesus just comes and with one hand in comfort lifts him out of that mess. And so I, I found as it was like this juxtaposing of these total opposites there within his life. I've never read of anyone who was more authoritative. He was the ultimate authority. And the crowds just all the time, they just went, where has this authority come from? And yet at the same time as that, 
I've never read of anyone more intimate and personal. And then, you know, <laughs> when it came to the supernatural, I've never read of anyone more supernatural than he. And at the same time, I've never read of anyone more culturally relevant than he was. You're getting where I'm coming from. Because where I'm coming from is though Jesus co-joined these absolute extremes and he just brought them together and he had such an edge that made him the most potent ministry that's ever walked this earth. And that fascinated me and I began to ask the question, how does he do that? How does he do that? How does he join the extremes? You know, in contrast, to be honest with you, I usually find most people walk in extremes. <laughs> I find some people are so busy, they're just totally devoted to their business, they've got no time for anything else. I found other people, and I surf with some of them, are so devoted to leisure, there's nothing else in this world but leisure. <laughs> you get one or the other. I found some people so structured. You ever found those? So I had a friend, and I went into his garage once, and I was horrified. There was a little drawing of every tool he had, and there was a tool sitting on the outline. And I went, dear God, <laughs> you don't want to come to my house. <laughs> ah, in all that chaos, I know where my junk is. You know what I'm saying? And yet, uh, I found some people so spontaneous, man. Mate, they're on a structured bone in their body. They're just extremes. I, I found people who were so denominational, <laughs> I forget the Christianity, <laughs> they're denomination, man. And uh, yet, at the same time, I find other people so counter-revolutionary, they reject all the church. And, you know, they sit there in a little house group and they're so counter-revolutionary, they're in their extreme. And I find people that are so devoted to Jesus' deep teaching, deep teaching, that's all you ever get is deep teaching. And, and yet, <laughs> or you find these others totally devoted to philanthropy. That's all you get. You know, you connect to the community and all we do is connect to the community. And, uh, and I, I find we walk those extremes. And there are those who are so austere and authoritative. <laughs> Uh, you know, you don't want to be around them, really. And there's others that are so relational and all accepting, they accept everyone. You follow what I'm saying? And so I just find we are, we are extremes. Most of humanity is extremes. And so I find some people that are so fascinated with the supernatural, that's all you get. You just get the supernatural, the supernatural. Jesus is going to work a miracle. And can I just say, you lose the meaning of a miracle because miracles happen every minute of every day of every hour for them. You, you follow what I'm saying? It's no longer a miracle. It just happens every moment of the day. Um, and yet there are other people that are so culturally relevant, so focused on seeker sensitivity. <laughs> That's all you get. Are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? Do you want an ice cream? Do you want a little squirt of water in the face? Are you comfortable? Are you relaxed? And other churches are so sick or insensitive, unless you're shaking and rolling on the floor and, and convulsing or doing something, well, God didn't turn up at church. Uh, you follow what I'm saying? Because we are extremes. Now, I'm sure you've encountered many people who are either or. or. I'm sure you have. Now... <laughs> 
it was Jesus that fascinated me because Jesus was all extremes together, but it all came together in one. Now, with that, some have tried to theologically try and understand that, the uniqueness of who Jesus was. And they've said that Jesus was 100% divine. His God become flesh. And, uh, and to be honest, that's pretty terrifying and very transcendent. Goes above, beyond all that we can ask or even think. And then other people say, at the same time, he was 100% human. So 1 John 1 just says uh, to him whom we could talk to and touch and relate to. We just related to him. And so because of this, Jesus was divine and yet he was human in one flesh. And it's good theology. I don't really understand it, but it's good theology. Uh, but with that, as I observed Jesus, it was this fact that just made him unique and it's what drew me to him. And I'd, I'd read a lot at that stage, and it was this. And I found Jesus was never an either or an or. It just wasn't either that. In fact, he was all those extremes. So fun, sometimes I just found Jesus terrifying and transcendent. And other times, so human and so relatable, it just drew me like this winsome, drawing thing. That's what attracted me to him. Now, with that there... It was this that made his life so profound and impacting. And that's, that reason is I really wanted to share with all of us as a church. And I want to move you close to that edge where you can take the extremes and you can just come together in an edge. And so that's, that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, I read from Ecclesiastes, and I need to share, share a few things on this and, and be very mindful of time as well. I did a series here on Sunday evenings in this church when we had services here in the night on Ecclesiastes. You might remember, didn't you? And it was called The Search. And Nicky remembers because I had this great shot I had there of this big left-hand barrel with a guy. And Nikki's a surfer and she just loved that photo. Uh, but it's all about a search. And the whole book is uh, a search as a man is living under the sun, under secular humanism. And as he lives under that worldview, he goes, what's the meaning of life? And he does this whole sermon about the meaning of life. And under that secular worldview, he searches everything. He searches riches. He searches wine, women, and song. He searches their every, everything you could search. And he comes up and he goes, everything is vanity. So vanity is the key word of the book mentioned 35 times in that one book alone. And so everything is vanity under a secular worldview. The only time there is meaning is you've got to go over the sun. You've got to go over the sun, and you've got to encounter the one who stands over the sun. Suddenly, meaning comes into this world. But the whole thing is a journey. Now, the reading I read from today comes from a section which is pretty depressing. It's going, the depressing certainty of death. <laughs> I, I got this album. I love it. And, and Haley, Haley is so taken by it because it's all about death. And she comes up, I'm going, I'm dying, dying, dying. <laughs> and he comes up and mocks my, my record. And, uh, and anyway, I like it. And, but it's pretty depressing, the certainty of death. And so the section of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and 10, it goes, after he's done all the search, he just comes to this such depressing, what is the meaning when everything just ends in death anyway? And then where we are, where I read from, 
is intersection of wisdom and folly. And folly is the key word. And folly is mentioned nine times in this one chapter alone, chapter 10. And so folly, wisdom and folly. And so what he does, the author here, it's a very unusual part of Ecclesiastes. It's nearly like what they call stringing the beads like Proverbs. And you just have these pithy statements come out and they're all in pairs. And most people don't notice that they're in pairs. And so what happens, he always presents firstly, good, right-handed, orthodox wisdom. And everyone will sit back and go, amen. But he'll always couple it in a pair and he'll put it with bizarre, left-handed, unorthodox wisdom that everyone just scratches their head and go, that is bizarre. Okay? And it's very easy to pick all the nice verses out and go, well, that's good, right-handed, orthodox wisdom. Uh, But there's this twist in it. And it all sits under this depressing certainty of death. Now, basically, the moral of the story here is a little tiny bit of folly can overwhelm and destroy a great deal of wisdom. Just a little bit of folly. And, uh, you know, is one silly thing someone can do in their life can ruin a ministry that was 40 years in the making. You follow what I'm saying? One moment of folly. And so that is the context. So now uh, I got there, that fly. I sort of like the fly. Uh, it's because the chapter begins in Ecclesiastes 10.1, and it goes, is, is folly. Uh, it goes, it's like a fly in perfume. And you're there wanting to douse on the perfume. And guess what I got attracted to that perfume bottle was these flies. And these flies fall into and drown in the perfume. And you go to lavish your perfume on, and there's all these dead flies. And it defiles the whole jar of perfume. I tell you, you girls, man alive, I'm a bloke. You've got to buy stuff for these creatures after a while, and they like that perfume stuff, and it's expensive. (laughs) And it's even worse when you buy it and it's full of flies. Okay? Now... That, that's the sort of the context. A little bit of folly can overwhelm a whole lot of wisdom. So let's come and unpack this for a moment. Ecclesiastes 10, 10 is beautiful, good, right-handed, orthodox wisdom. We love it. We'll all nod our heads and go, yes, that's wonderful. And it goes, the iron, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. And... Every wisdom preacher there is will quote that verse. That's good, right-handed, orthodox wisdom. And basically, is, is the bottom line, it's just, is don't work harder, work smarter. In other words, if you'll take the time to prepare and sharpen your axe, it'll make your work a lot more efficient and a lot more productive if you will do that. So preparation is key to wisdom. And so... Uh, with that, if I uh, then bring this up, I want to read it out of the message because you always got to read something out of the message, don't we, Nikki? And it goes, remember, the duller the axe, the harder the work. Use your head. The more brains, the less muscle. <laughs> I like that. Uh, good, orthodox wisdom. And we all stand back and we go, amen. And then... Solomon just twists it and he puts 
So you've got to sharpen a blade. You've got to have two edges. You've got to take the two extremes and you've got to b- bring them together and that makes the potency. And so you don't do that. You're going to work hard, man. And so it's pretty simple. Sharpen the edge. Now, <laughs> it's paired with this bizarre wisdom. And it goes there, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage for the charmer. Now, you go, what in the world? Is that coupled with that good right-handed orthodox wisdom? It's bizarre. And, but I think you'll, you'll get the issue here in a moment. You see, snake charming in 1000 BC, when this was written, uh, was a skill. And that skill was a, uh, a skill that could make you very lucrative in your income earning. So it was very popular in Egypt and still is popular in India today. Anyone seen the snake charmers in India? And what happens if you're going to become a snake charmer and become lucrative is you better prepare well. But you've got to do something more than preparation. You better good, get some good left-handed twisted wisdom as well. And with that, you better understand something about snake behavior. Now, they love cobras because if you uncover a cobra, it'll stand up immediately and flatten and hood its head out into its striking position. Now, there's some rules if you're going to be a snake charmer you've got to learn. is because most people don't know these uh, things and because of that, you get very impressed when you see someone handling a cobra up close. But the rules are this. You sit one-third of the distance of the snake's length of its body away from it because it can't strike you beyond that one-third length of the snake. And it'll always stand up one-third its length. That's the height. And so if you sit out that zone, which this man is, he's outside, just outside the zone, he can't get bitten. But you've got to learn that. You better prepare well and learn that. Now, the few other things you need to know about snake charming is you better learn something about snake behavior. So if you have a snake in a basket, which snake charmers usually do, you lift the lid, instantly the snake will rise up in defensive position. Now, so it looks impressive because then you can do what you want to do with the snake and it's going to earn you a lot of money. But snakes will do that because they are defensive creatures, rarely ever aggressive. And a snake will actually uh, do that. Now, incidentally, uh, not all snakes do this. Uh, This is why, say, a rattlesnake in the US, which I'll just use that, uh, they'll go beyond one-third of their body length. They can go half their body length. So you've got to be pretty careful which snake you're playing with as well. Now, with this, they're usually defensive rather than aggressive. And the other thing about a cobra, it can't strike above his lifted head. So if I'm above that zone, he can't bite me. So that's a good thing to know if you're going to handle snakes, isn't it? Now, the other thing is they train their serpents. And so what you do is they have a hard flute. And that hard flute, if the serpent bites it, it usually collides with the hard flute. And after about three goes of that, it goes, well, this is not a comfortable experience. So it will desist from biting you, okay, usually. Uh, The other thing is snakes don't hear. They sort of pick up vibrations. They don't hear like us. So the snake charmer's flute does nothing for the snake. He's learnt that it's the swaying motion and the snake will follow the motion. So that's what makes the snake dance, not the tune. 
And then the final thing is some snake charmers will remove the poison fangs or the poison glands and some of the unscrupulous ones will even sew the mouth of the snake shut. So the average life length of a snake for a snake charmer is six months. Because if they sew the mouth shut, it dies of starvation and they just go get another snake. So you, you, you all got that? So anyway, what I want to say is this. You better prepare well if you're going to be a snake charmer, but you better get some good left-handed wisdom. And that left-handed wisdom is this, is if you make a mistake, one moment of folly, and uh-oh, you're going to lose your revenue. Not only your revenue, you're probably going to get sick, and under the big theme of this section of Ecclesiastes, you're most likely going to die. You got it? So one mistake in your journey, one moment of folly, you lose everything. So the rule is, you just can't prepare well in wisdom. You must be diligent. So you prepare and you be diligent. And so in that diligency, that will spare you from folly. And it's weird, twisted wisdom, but you better get that diligence right or you're going to be a snake charmer, we're going to your funeral. You, you hear me? I'm just putting it as it's written. <laughs> now, I want to read it out of the New Living Translation, so you all get it. Using a dull axe requires great strength, so sharpen the blade. That's the value of wisdom. It helps you succeed. If a snake bites you before you charm it, what's the use of being a snake charmer? All the preparation in the world didn't do you any good at all. You, you got it? Okay. Now, it's a little like New Testament. It says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. In other words, one little bit of folly in the mix and it's going to overwhelm everything. You, you, okay, I think you've got it. So sharpen the edge. Prepare well, but you better be diligent. You better be diligent or all that sharpened edge is going to come to naught. Okay, now with this then, I actually see there are primarily two edges uh, to wisdom for ministry. And it's uh, this, like Jesus that was 100% divine, is the fact is we need to be supernaturally edged people. And part of the journey of this series, we're going to look at this. So the first is a supernatural edge, and it needs to come as an extreme in your life. And... Uh, we're going to look there next week at 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but upon the wisdom of God, okay? Now, with that there, Jesus was 100% divine. He was 100% relatable to people. Now, with that there, you better have a relevancy edge and don't be one extreme. You need to be the extremes together. And in those extremes together, it brings potency to the ministry. And with this here, 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll be looking at this in several weeks' time, but 1 Corinthians 9, 20, uh, 21, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews, to those outside the law I became one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law, and to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all people that by means I might save some. So I don't become relevant to get acceptance from the world. 
I, I, I don't care what the world thinks of me. I, I don't be relevant so I can be accepted. I'm only relevant so I can communicate and connect to them, to present the gospel edge to that world. Now, with application then to ministry, let's put this together. And then we're going to say just a few things and then we're going to finish for the day. Uh, now, so you need good right-handed wisdom when it comes to your life to get a sharpened edge in your ministry world. Is the first edge. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, you must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. Prepare well. And so I want to try and prepare you for a sharpened edge for effectiveness as we relate to our world. Is that okay? And so that's part what I'm told to do in ministry is that, to equip you for the work of the ministry. And with that there, we need to prepare the church for ministry skills to see people transformed, saved, and discipled. You, you, you got it? But my, my, we better temper that with some good left-handed corkscrewed, unorthodox wisdom. And if the serpent bites before it is charms, there is no advantage for the charmer. So with that there, you better get some diligence and you can't let anything slip. If you let it slip for a moment, one little bit of folly can destroy everything you try and do. You got it? And then with that there... Uh, I think you may get the spiritual application because we're not into snake charming. We're dealing with a more serious snake than anything of this. We're dealing with the one Revelation 12, 9 says, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent, the, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he's very aware of what supernatural and relevancy can do in someone's life and he seeks to block that. One moment of folly in your life can overthrow everything you were trying to achieve. And so with that there, it's one thing to have a blunt edge. But it's even worse when you lose the old whole axe head. And there's one story I want to just finish with today. It's because there's a story of a guy who loses the whole axe head, not just getting a blunt edge, and before we can even talk about a sharpened edge, what happens if you haven't even got an axe head on the end of your handle? Well, friends, you better come to terms with that. So I want to read this, 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 1 to 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan. Each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So I went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down the trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. <laughs> that just sits there in the life of Elijah, that one little anecdotal story. So how do you lose an axe head? You can't even have a sharpened edge if you haven't got an axe head. And so... Uh, this wasn't an uncommon thing. They even made a law in case that happened. So Deuteronomy 19.5 says, if the head slips off an axe and hits your neighbor, well, there is provision of how we're going to tr treat that issue. So I'd say over the course of time, there was a few axe heads that flew off handles. <laughs> we could take that a long way. <laughs> now, 2 Kings 6.5 this guy does literally this, but one was felling a log. His axe head fell into the water. He lost it. 
He lost the whole head off the whole handle. So how do you lose an axe head? How do you lose it? Well, friends, it comes back to a couple of things. It comes back to preparation, and it comes back to diligence. Now, with this here, this guy lost the axe head into the muddy waters. The muddy waters of unbelief, doubt, discouragement, complacency, worldliness, and sin. that you can lose that thing in. And he loses it. He loses it right off the handle. So how do you lose an axe head? Well, is, uh, and the first one is you don't prepare right. And bigger still is that left-handed corkscrewed wisdom is what happens, you are not diligent. And in your failure to be diligent, one moment of folly can destroy everything you're trying to do. And you can lose the whole axe head right off your handle. Now, with this there, uh, I, I'll, I'll just zoom over this, but you know we know the parable of the sower and the roadway soil and the soil overlaying stone. The thing, the reason the gospel never went into them, it had no root in themselves. That's what it says. is because the ground was not prepared and there was no diligency. And so they lost the head. You can lose an axe head by distractions. So let's apply that spiritually. Uh, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so with that there, uh, it'll then uh, move on. And it will just say there, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of this life is not from the Father, it's but from the world. And so you can have other loves distract you from your main love of God. And friends, you're going to lose the head of your axe. And with that, Jesus put it this way. And listen to it. Whoever loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Because if you get your loves skewed in the wrong priorities, it's going to distract you. And you're going to find yourself in a position where you have lost the whole head of your axe right off your handle. It's not even a case of getting a sharpened edge in your life. You've lost it. It's gone. Now, I've preached on this scripture before. And then let me just say a few other things. You can lose an axe head by unwise zeal. I remember we were in Glen Innes and we wanted some trees from the car park. We went out into this area out near Emmerville, took a bunch of the boys out. I tell you, you can tell city slickers from the real deal. The moment they start swinging that axe, you see some guys, it's like they're, you know, they've got to prove their prowess and the way that axe starts swinging and you go, he's going to last about 10 minutes. <laughs> you watch him and they haven't got a clue. The city boys. And next thing you see this axe head woof off the end of the handle. And you know something because he didn't prepare right and there's no diligence in what he's doing. And so with that there, it's not the violence of the blow that works. It's the skill of the operator. Now, the other way you can lose an axe head is complacency. The same old, same old. You're just going through the motions. And, you know, spiritually... You can tell when it's the same old, same old because prayer has slipped in your life. It's devotion slipped in your life. Your worship experience slips in your life. Not only that, your church commitment slips. And before you know it, you're swinging away and you've lost the old axe head right off your handle. You got it? Now, fatigue is a guarantee you're going to lose the handle. You get burnout, I guarantee you're going to lose the head right off your axe. 
and you were once there serving, serving, serving. Next moment, you've lost everything. It's totally gone in your life. Because, friends, it's one thing to prepare, but you've got to have diligency. You cannot let one moment, one moment of folly is going to lose that head right off your axe, and the devil wants you to lose it. He wants you to lose it. He wants you out of the church. He wants you ineffective. He does not want you having a sharpened edge in ministry. He doesn't even want you to have an axe on your head, of your, of, of your handle. Now, I preached on this before, so how do you recover it? And we're just about done. Is that okay? So get that bottle out, spray yourself right at this moment. Can you last another five, ten minutes? Okay. Okay, so let me just talk through that story and I'll just do these things as we finish. Don't do that. So the first thing the story just starts this way. The sons of the prophets, I'm going to say, should expand. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small. I just want to tell you, say two things about this. If you're going to have an axe head in the first place, you'd better be born again. You'd better have come to Christ and you'd better be tuned into God's voice because you're not tuned into God's voice, you ain't going nowhere. These YWAM guys, their first week in ministry, they get is how to hear God's voice. Because if you don't get past that zone, you're going nowhere and you could do a Bible school for three years, it's taking you nowhere. Because you've got to hear God and you better hear His voice. And so you better become a son of a prophet. You better get born again. You need to tune into God's voice. And this guy was that. And God's economy is never man's economy. It's because when things are going bad in this world, God's church is usually prospering and growing. God's doing real fine in some of the most persecuted areas on earth. Because God's economy. And if you hit some barrenness, we do what we did last week when I said, sing, O barren one. Sing. <laughs> Cry aloud. Uh, you know, you have not born. Uh, because more of the children of the desolate are going to be the one who thinks you've got a husband. And so with this here, second thing, there's only seven of them. They're going to be pretty short. Second one is all individuals need a sharpened edge. You've all got to have an axe head. Now listen to this. And let us go to the Jordan and each of us, each of us, get there a log and let us make a place for you to dwell. Do you realize some people go, oh, we go to church and I hope Neville's good today. <laughs> and you walk out of church and go, bummer. <laughs> Bummer. One time I was preaching in Coss Harbor, a guy used to score me every sermon. He came and gave me minus two out of ten one day. Minus two out of ten, a bad day in church. <laughs> now, with that there is you realize that the ministry of the church is dependent on you. Do you realize if you just turn up at church, you make a difference? All of us, all of us to have an axe head on that handle. If you turn up at the prayer meeting, you make the difference. When you come to the church and the effectiveness of the church, it's you that makes the difference. Every one of you. And Paul says even the unseemly member becomes more seemly. It's because you're all important. You got that? So all of us need to get an axe head. And all of us move in corporate vision. All of us need to go to the task. Okay? So we come to the third one. Good idea to get accompanied by God's prophet. And so, then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. Obviously weren't a part of the green movement. <laughs> oh, anyway, I, I won't go there. Uh, 
So with that there, is can I just say for all of us, make sure Christ is present in your life in ministry. If you just keep Jesus present, that's what's important. Can I say? Now the fourth one is you need to own up to responsibility. And so, but as one was felling a log, his axe head did what? He lost it. Because although he might have prepared well, he was not diligent. And that axe head went right off the handle, fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now, with this here, all ministry is borrowed. You think you're important? <laughs> Friends, you ain't important. It's God that's important. It's Jesus that's important. And every bit of ministry that you do is only being given by you by God anyway. And so with that there, it is given by God to you to work through your life to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4.12. Now with that there is accountability demands responsibility. And you need to be accountable, you. You have got to be accountable of your life. That's why Jesus told that parable of the talents. We're all accountable. We all got to give an account to that within our lives. And so when we come, we're going to have to give an account of those giftings in our life. And in that accountability, there is responsibility. And in that responsibility, if you lose that axe head, you need to take responsibility and you need to go, I am responsible. It's me that's lost the edge. Now, he had a choice. This guy said, oh, my tree doesn't matter. Someone else will do it. This world needs to be reached. Someone else will do it. Well, friends, no. This world relies on you. There's someone that relies on you to be sharpened to present the gospel into their world. He could have thrashed with the handle. <laughs> Pretend he didn't lose it. So he just walks up to the trees and keeps banging the trees with the handle. <laughs> After a while, uh, it's been a good day in ministry. Come on, man. Thrashing away with no effect at all. He could have done that choice. But the most popular of all, this is what he could have done. Blame it on others. Ah, the pastor. That's why I've lost my cutting axe head. The pastor. I'm going to go home and have pasta for lunch. And then, you know, the church. Then people in the church full of hypocrites. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Saved by grace. And so with that there... You can blame everything in the world, but you've got to own responsibility. If you've lost the axe head, you need to declare that responsibility to God, and you need to say, I've lost it. And you know, you even use this terminology. You hear ministry, and you go, man, he's got an edge about his ministry. But if some people have lost it, they had it once, they lost it. They lost the head right off the handle. Now, when that happens, you return. You return to the place where the loss occurred. And then the man of God, the prophet, he said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. Now, if you be responsible and you own the responsibility for what's lost, lead Jesus back to the place where it was lost and go, I take responsibility for the loss. And in that responsibility, you need to be honest. You need to confess. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Remove us all that sin from all of us because he is faithful. And so with that there, uh, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I'm not sure what happened there. Went right off the screen. William or someone up there. Let me just keep going there. We're, we're just about done. Two little points to go. And then you can spray everyone with the water. <laughs> so with that there, number six, is you cut out 
a new method. You cut out that new method. And then Elijah cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float. What bizarreness. With axe head, can I just say this, nearly any old handle will do as long as it was prepared right and you were diligent. Now, can I just say, I don't care how good you think you are in ministry, <laughs> you just butt a handle. Any old handle will do. And with that there, as long as the handle's fitted and maintained correctly, that axe head will do its job. And can I just say, some old methods and old handles need to go. You've got to shed some things. In church, we've got to shed some things at times. Of course, religion doesn't want to do that. And you cut off that new handle and you throw that new method into the waters and it will meet resurrection life. And when you lose the axe head, you need resurrection life. You need a resurrection. Now, Jesus is pretty good at that. Remember, he raised up money out of the bottom of fish's mouths in the bottom of the sea. First bottom of the harbour tax scheme there ever was. <laughs> and then Jesus rose up Jairus' daughter, the widow had Nain's son. He rose up Lazarus. In fact, every funeral I ever read about Jesus went to, the corpse sat up. That's why I invited Jesus to my funeral. <laughs> ah, uh, sit up in the box and go, hello. <laughs> oh, that'd be a good day in church. And, um, and can I just say, Jesus rose from the dead in a whole new order, a whole new resurrection order. And when that resurrection lies, he wants to raise your axe head from the water. And the final one is, once that axe head, which defies gravity, that was lost in the muddy waters of unbelief, muddy waters of doubt, lost in the, in the muddy waters of sin and defilement. The incredible thing is when Christ's resurrection life works, is it defies gravity because there's a greater law overruling even gravity. Resurrection life is the greatest law in this universe and it raises this thing up from the deep. And the prophet says, take it up, pick it up. You fit that new handle to it and he reached out his hand and he took it. And can I just say with this, I love how Paul put this, I press on toward the goal of the prize, of the upward call of, Christ, in, of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, I like that. Reminds me of an old song. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on to the higher calling of my Lord. Oh, I, 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 I just want... Uh, anyway, I'm right in the Dylan zone there, man. <laughs> I'm pressing on. And can I just say, get moving. Press on. Press on. And you need a sharpened edge. You've got to have an axe head in resurrection life. And then you need to have a sharpened edge. And this is where we're going in the series. Next week, we're looking at a supernatural edge. Then the relevancy edge. Then the forward edge. The authentic edge. And across the edge. And I should put two, you two in there. The edge. <laughs> we'll edge it. And I'm going to move you close to the edge. Let's stand. Let's pray. Amen.